Hello, friends and colleagues. This is Jared Silliker in Seattle. I'm a sustainability strategist and want to welcome you to Building Better, a podcast that tracks trends and stories in the built environment. Sustainability can mean many different things to various folks. Uh, we'll certainly focus on climate change impacts of buildings, but there are all sorts of angles that make this work so fun and intriguing, be it healthy materials, water efficiency, or even building codes. I know, I know maybe not your type of excitement, but creative people are around every corner in this industry. So for this first episode, I'm joined by a great friend, Vincent Martinez. Vince is Chief Operating Officer at Architecture 2030, which is a nonprofit dedicated to aggressive carbon reductions in buildings. He is a wealth of knowledge, and I think you'll really like how he thinks through some complex issues. We get into all sorts of fun discussions in this episode. One of my favorites is the time value of carbon. You've heard of the time value of money, but this is even more important, I think. We touch on various low carbon product innovations, building electrification, and even some of our respective early career inspirations. So please enjoy episode one of Building Better. Hello, and uh, welcome to the podcast. Hello, Vince. Uh, great to have you here. Uh, thanks for having me, Jared. Excellent. Uh, well, first off, uh, you are officially the first guest of the podcast. Uh, so I'm thank honored. you. <laughs> thank you for going on this journey with me. Uh, we'll, yeah. we'll see how it goes. Um, if it is a truly fit for the masses. Uh, so, uh, quick introduction, uh, Vincent Martinez, Chief Operating Officer of Architecture 2030, uh, is a nonprofit dedicated to decarbonizing the built environment. Um, Architecture 2030 has long been focused on the design community, hence the name, uh, but as we'll get into later, uh, that has expanded over the years. Uh, Vince, anything you want to add to that uh, short description? Uh, I'll only add, Jared, that Architecture 2030's focus is a, a rapid decarbonization of the built environment um, and that our, our focus is the global built environment. So both a global mission, so there's a sense of scale there, and then a rapid decarbonization, and there's a sense of time. Yes, good, good. Always, always good to ratchet up the urgency. I like it. Um, so uh, going Going backwards, however, uh, Vince and I have had the pleasure of collaborating on a number of fronts, uh, which goes back to my days as a contractor with EPA. Um, I helped support Energy Star tools that were um, quite in line with the design targets that Architecture 2030 was advocating for. Um, we were also both involved with a sustainable design education platform launched by AI Seattle. Um, and then uh, I guess most recently, although still over 10 years ago, uh, helped <laughs> launch the Seattle 2030 district, uh, which has uh, now grown to many other cities uh, under the guidance of uh, Architecture 2030. Um, uh, did I miss anything in there, Vince? <laughs> no, but you do remind us about how long we've been at this, Jared. But, uh, but I think also, highlighting the evolution of focus in the work that we've done together um, and that we both continue to do. For sure. Yeah. I think this also kind of brings to mind as I 
you know, think think about the evolution of architecture 2030 is, uh, you know, historical focus on operating energy. Uh, when, you know, when we were looking at, at those very basic energy use intensity targets for a range of building types, uh, you know, it was all, you know, hey, what's this, what's this building going to use in its operation? Um, and certainly that's still a very important, important piece. Uh, but we're also seeing a, a big surge in attention around embodied energy in the built environment. And Architecture 2030 in the mix. Uh, so can you give us some context there? Uh, and I'm, I guess I'm thinking both this trend in general, you know, mm -hmm. attention to it in, in the industry, and then kind of how your um, team has thought about it and, and continues to, to plan for it. Sure, Jared. Yeah, I think there's a lot there. And I think going back to the beginning focus on operational emissions, really, um, while it was embodied in the concept of energy, you know, the, when we first got to start working with you and with EPA, that was all based on the original 2030 challenge, which set fossil fuel energy consumption reduction targets for new construction and major renovations. And so often we overlook the fossil fuel uh, descriptor of the energy in that challenge. And we've really in, in the design community and the green building world, we focused on energy use and, and efficiency, uh, which is a means towards that reduction in fossil fuel energy. But I, I think there's also been an evolution around what, what our goals are on operational emissions and looking at the source of those energy as well in order to re make the reduction in fossil fuel energy consumption. So efficiency is part of that. And that's certainly where there's a core element and, and necessary element. And then the other side is on the generation sources um, of both reducing it on site, meaning getting the gas out of these buildings and then changing the source of the electricity uh, for away from fossil fuel generated sources. So I wanted to highlight that too, as part of the evolutional dynamic here. Uh, from where we were before, not just energy use, but fossil fuel energy use or uh, greenhouse gas emitting energy use has really always been the goal of the challenge. And I think is now catching up with the industry around not just focusing on energy conservation, but also on generation sources. One of the main reasons why the operational energy consumption and emissions caught on so quickly is it really is a design problem. It involves architects, mechanical engineers, uh, and builders as well about how we design and operate and maintain buildings uh, and the choices of their fuels and, and how efficient they are in their operation. So it, it was a design problem, and especially when we're talking about new construction and major renovations. And so the architecture community and the engineering community really stepped forward and said, this is our battle to fight and we, we influence these emissions. Uh, but more so, there was the conversation when we looked at the original pie charts about operational emissions versus embodied emissions. Um, embodied emissions looked to be perceived as a small portion. Usually it was between 12 and 20% of the overall emissions or energy consumption of a building over its lifetime. Um, and that said a particular impression. It said operational emissions are more important than embodied emissions because of this time that we looked at it under mm -hmm. what, and it was really misleading, I think, because of two things. One is 
that's saying, let's look at the whole building over an entire life cycle, which may be a hundred years, um, and then act like all those emissions happen all in what, at the same time, which is not true. Right. Uh, the operational emissions happen over time, but all of the embodied emissions happen before you even turn on the lights or start up the building yeah. and you can't get them back. We can make changes on operational emissions over the course of the building's life. So that was one misconception is sort of when these emissions go up. And we know that in the climate emergency that we face right now, the next decade is the most critical. And so there's a time value to carbon emissions that wasn't considered in those overall life cycle pieces when we looked at the original pie charts. Mm -hmm. and, uh, everybody kind of looked at it the same way and we relied on certain levels of statistics and that's how it was divvied up yep. uh, until recently. And I think Architecture 2030 plays a big role in changing that conversation as well as the Carbon Leadership Forum and talking about the time value of carbon. So, that, so that's one um, sort of the, the time aspect. Do we, when do we consider the emissions happen? Um, and then how much time do we have, which is not very right. much. And so we, when we condense that down and say that the life cycle of a building that, of the time we care about is something only like 50 years or 30 years, then we start to get more of a balancing of the, even within the totals life cycle where embodied emissions are relatively equal to operational emissions, noting all those caveats that embodied come first, you can't get them back, you can't change them. Uh, so I think all of that has changed the conversation. Um, and as I mentioned, Architecture 2030 and Carbon Leadership Forum have led that charge in changing the conversation. We've worked with the Carbon Leadership Forum um, back since 2010, when uh, in 2011, we launched the 2030 Challenge for Products, essentially at the request or within conversations with Carbon Leadership Forum about engaging the built environment and the building design professionals the same way that we did with operational in the 2030 Challenge to try to get this out there in the public. And mm -hmm. it's taken almost nine years for this to reach a level of understanding of the relevancy, the urgency of this topic and how to actually tackle it. And that's the other piece is that I think the, another reason it didn't necessarily get the traction it needed 10 years ago, it wasn't that people weren't working on it. There were people that were looking at this, but it felt so ambiguous, so difficult, so global mm -hmm. supply chain focused that we didn't have any way to really plug into it. Um, it didn't look like a design problem. It looked like let me specify a different type of material and I'm done. And I think the language and sophistication and understanding of the topic has said, actually, it is a design problem, just as much as operational energy and emissions. How we design the building affects what materials we use and how many materials we need to use. And that we do have a lot of power, yes, in design in selection and specification to change manufacturing and that it doesn't have to be focused on every single building material that's out there because there are millions mm -hmm. but we can focus on the high impact materials that go into buildings specifically two major materials of concrete which has cement is the main climate contributor and steel are two of the largest contributors in the industry pie for emissions essentially 10 percent of global emissions each so you know, there and now we've limited it down and we only need to focus on, in this case, two high impact materials. There are, are many more that would fill in that high impact category, right. but it doesn't have to be everything under the sun. And I think that makes it a little bit more palatable for the design community to say, okay, I have a stake in this. I have the ability to change this global supply sector. 
Yeah, I, I think this is a really fabulous um, repositioning, um, you know, by by your team and, and others to sort of crack that um, even conceptual nut of, uh, you know, and I think I really like your, you know, time value of carbon that, uh, yeah, I think early on it, it felt easy to say, well, wow, let's just do the math and say, you know, the the operating energy just goes into perpetuity and it just feels like, oh, well, that's, you know, that's what you need to focus on. And, and for sure that is very important. Um, but when we really narrow the, the window and, and speak to the urgency, it just becomes, you know, such a different math equation. <laughs> um, and, and I think you guys have done a great job of, of sort of both thinking through that and, and then laying out as you just did sort of how that, um, plays out. Thank, thanks for that. And I think you hit a really good point, Jared, that just because we're now paying more attention and giving focus to embodied emissions, doesn't mean that our focus on operational emission goes away. Right. Uh, that's just as important as it's always been to not lock buildings into certain consumption patterns or certain fuel types or certain systems in perpetuity, as you've described it, uh, and to get a handle on that and make and make progress. And we are making progress. Um, operational energy has leveled out in the U.S. building stock for the last decade since we launched the 2030 challenge, and we've actually reduced emissions considerably uh, during that period of time as well. Yeah. So it's, there's a success story in operations that we can apply to embody but it's not uh, one versus the other. Sure. We have to do both. And maybe that's the other uh, sort of conceptual catalyst is getting to op you know, embodied emissions as well as operational emissions is we have to go to zero. We have to literally phase out all fossil fuels in all sectors in, uh, quickly, very, very quickly, with a limited carbon budget. And so recognizing we can't just leave something else on the table to deal with later. Right. And then when we recognized how important it was in the time value piece and also just the global status of it, um, given the new construction that we're facing here for rapid urbanization, you definitely can't ignore it. Yeah. So a number of things came, I think, to coalesce and make this an important topic for the building mm -hmm. sector. You hit on another piece there that is intriguing to me that um, the it it takes I, I think um, you know the material science world and and elevates it a bit that uh, you know perhaps in in years past uh, sort of ooh you know can I specify a you know a more uh, high performance, uh, lower VOC paint or finish, you know, on down the line. Also very important, you know, we want healthy air in our buildings. So certainly not diminishing that, but, but that world, you know, ratcheted up very quickly, you know, to have lots of choices. Um, but, but that work, that specification world, I think probably to some felt, um, elementary, you know, sort of here, let's find the right thing and just check, check these boxes and we're doing great. And, you know, someone finds that to be green um, and kind of what you've outlined here in, in going the level deeper to embodied carbon, um, it, you know, just feels and, and is, I think so much more impactful 
to the the crisis here that we we have some real power in ag agreed with with your um, you know high impact materials especially that hey this this uh, this realm of material science has has some real power um, and I, I might even draw the analogy too to like I, I think you know building operators building engineers you know to some oh folks that are you know down in the basement in the shop and it's like those men and women have you know crazy power to to change you know they they, they literally have the levers of of the building in front of them um, and i love i love seeing cases where where those people are empowered celebrated and it you know it sort of flips flips a you know potential either stereotype or just conceptual construct on its head a bit to say these are the people that have great impact right and influence, and influence. I, I think that that's, that's accurate, Jared. The, the other piece is it just didn't seem like a big sexy topic for designers sure. to get involved sure. with, yeah. right? I mean, uh, and that has a bit to do with the learning curve that we're all on on this. You know, that we learned a lot from the initial energy crisis and the reaction to that from the design community back in the 70s and 80s on operational energy reductions, not because of emissions, but because of conservation mm -hmm. and the need to manage resources. And we had a, a learning curve there that was that happened very rapidly in terms of prescriptive standards for how we design uh, window to wall ratio, floor plates, you know, all of these things that, you know, you and I talked about in the AI plus 2030 education series in this development and has been spoken around the country for a while now that we've built uh, a design language around operational energy and mm -hmm. emission reductions. Um, and it was designed. You know, it was how you actually do the massing of the form giving pieces of the building. It, it didn't get down to the specifications necessarily, although those were just as important what kind of systems we specify. Mm -hmm. um, so so there was a little bit more of a design problem there. There is still that in embodied emissions as well, which we can get into a little bit later. But I think a big part of the embodied emission conversation is it started out very much as an academic exercise, mm, Yeah, which was... Can we look at the global warming potential of a product's life cycle from soup to nuts or cradle to grave, as they say in the life cycle assessment world, yeah. uh, following this life cycle assessment? And can we use all this global data and develop environmental product declarations where we're counting carbon, not calories, uh, in, and get a label or some sort of idea of how much this product uses? And again, as a very academic exercise in its inception, and then we said, well, let's take that approach and let's specify uh, products that have a certain threshold uh, based off of that information. That was our approach with the 2030 challenge for products and said, look, we're not going to compare product categories, you know, steel to concrete or to wood or whatever it may be. We said, let's within a particular category, let's specify the better solution right. uh, from an emissions perspective. But what we found very, very quickly is that because of the way that that had been structured, and it was pretty much the wild west in terms of product category rules, mm -hmm. which is another one of PCR, the, another acronym in the alphabet soup there in the embodied world, is it was uncomparable. You have proprietary data sets. They had different methodologies. Uh, when you finally get into it, it's really hard to know what 
decisions to make following this performance-based approach because the data just wasn't there. Things have gotten a lot better in the last nine years. I think there's big tools now that have been released that support the data-driven approach. Um, but I think when we we recognized a few years ago that this data performance-given approach was not enough to make immediate impact given all the new construction that we're seeing happen globally. We needed to make some impact now. Um, and just like we started back in the 70s and 80s, we didn't have computer models. We didn't have performance-based approaches back then. What we had were rules of thumb and prescriptive standards that we all developed that design language based off of. So we embarked uh, with a number of products and and building sector experts on what does this life cycle assessment of these products actually tell us about low embodied products in general? What kind of, what is low embodied steel look like? What does low embodied carbon concrete look like? What does low embodied car, uh, carbon timber look like? And what are these attributes that we can ask for? Um, and then what are the whole building design principles that we should be employing, like using better materials or or um, less materials in our design and how do we do that from a form giving design standpoint again getting back to those design with a capital d pieces that interests everybody so much and then let's ask for those things rather than asking for a bunch of data that we can't compare we have to do both just like we have to do both on operation and embodied you still have to do both prescriptive and a performance path but we're going to have some options here to make some immediate impacts and so the result of that project was something we call the Carbon Smart Materials Palette that we launched in September 2018 at the Global Climate Action Summit in San Francisco with really great response mm. because I think people have been hungry for some other option than just asking manufacturers for environmental product declarations. Right. They wanted to actually take something back into their own hands to know how to use this and know about the materials and their attributes that lead to low embodied or even carbon sequestering um, results. Right. Right. So, um, let's, let's kind of characterize some of this language quick and then continue where you were going, I think is in my mind, they're, they're largely, and they're probably more angles, like the, the big ones being, okay, let's, let's help folks make better decisions by giving them, uh, you know, more access to information, which is, Kind of what you just described in terms of we need we need information from manufacturers in order to to do that, um, and and as you said we we run into some struggles around comparability, um, and then the other big one being uh, innovation in material science. You know, let's get after it. Where where is the where is the um, low carbon intensity steel carbon? Etc. Um, um, so I guess with that sort of context, it seems like you you tilted more towards the the latter sort of let's 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 get to it. How how is this palette then um, uh, uh, doing that addressing that? Sure. Well, what it tries to identify is the areas of life cycle of the product that actually contribute the most of the emissions. Okay. And then where are there opportunities to reduce emissions in that area of the life cycle? And then how can either manufacturers support the adoption of those types of products that have those attributes? How can design professionals ask manufacturers and create a demand for those types of products that have those attributes? 
And what we're finding is the implementation of that information has a variety of forms. So certainly we can make prescriptive requirements and specifications rather than asking for a global warming potential threshold based off of environmental product declaration, which we should still do. We can ask for the recycled content of steel, or we can ask for a um, minimum amount, uh, sorry, a maximum amount of cement in our concrete rather than a minimum amount of cement, which is typically the standard practice uh, because that's cement equals carbon in concrete. So those are the types of things, you know, when we get into wood, it, not all wood is good. Um, certainly forest management practices have a huge impact on the emissions, uh, and that's typically not considered in typical life cycle assessments or embodied environmental product declarations. So how, how can we ask for those forest management practices uh, through a variety of means, specifically asking for manufacturers? There's obviously their certifications that do some aspects of that. Um, but let's ask for what we want. Um, specifically rather than, and, and I think there's a push and pull there. Certainly manufacturers, some of them like that, have those attributes and some of them don't like that and say, Hey, you don't tell me how to make my product. Mm-hmm. Uh, just give me a threshold and let me figure out how to get there and I'll get there for you. And, and, and I think that both are healthy, but we didn't have the, the second or the first one. You know, we didn't have the ability to understand where the carbon was in these products to ask for something different. Um, and we've, we've been doing some of this stuff inherently for a long time. You know, recycled content in products is not anything new. We've been doing that for decades. Sure. And that's a huge impact on emissions with the amount of recycled material and many products. So that, that's an example of that. And the other example of sort of prescriptive asks is on material health. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of work on that topic done for toxicity, VOCs for the last couple of decades and longer. Um, when we look at health issues like asbestos, you know, 34 years ago, and we asked for, don't have this in your product, well, this particular chemical or this particular attribute. It's similar to what we're, the same approach we're taking now on, on, on carbon emissions. Mm-hmm. And are you, are you seeing any examples of, I guess, success in, and I'm thinking more in, in some vein of, of scaling of collection, co- collective action, um, through this project or, or others. Um, and I guess I'm, uh, kind of countering that to one off, you know, Hey, my project, I, I'm going to ask for those things that you just mentioned. And, and maybe in some cases I'm gonna, you know, sort of, request it via a, a standard, a, a specification. And it it feels, yes, that's good, but that yes, that probably takes a long time, you know, to, to add up, you know, one project and how long does that take to influence the manufacturing mm-hmm. sector to say, well, you know, sure, we, we can we can do that, but but we've only had, you know, X number of of uh, projects ask ask for it. And mm-hmm. so it's, it's not yet the standard. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, that's a, a excellent question and really it depends on the material and the industry as to how quickly something scales. Mm-hmm. And I think that the design community has been good at, uh, or is, is starting to at least flex its demand in a couple of ways. One is asking for information. So that's the typical asking for environmental product declarations, trying to understand the comparable pieces that, again, we still need to do 
and we're getting better at, and now we're getting better data to make it comparable and make decisions from it. We need to continue to do that. And only by everybody asking will we change uh, how those manufacturers look at their own products and market them to us as designers. Mm -hmm. So that's happening. Ask for information. The other piece that you're mentioning about, I'm going to specify this on my project, does this really make a a collective impact if we do it on a number of projects? And again, it it matters about the industry. So I'll give you two examples. Uh, Concrete is a particularly local material. It's made out of water, sand, Mm -hmm. aggregate, uh, and cement as a binder. And you can't drive it very far. (laughs) <laughs> and you certainly don't want to either. Uh, you don't want to import really good aggregate from somewhere across the world yeah. and get it focused around transportation, right? There's there's these pros and cons for yeah. trying to look for something perfect. Um, but essentially, it's a local material. Yeah. Um, what's interesting about concrete is that in certain cases, if you're asking a big enough project, depending on where it happens in the product manufacturing, you may change it at the plant level. And that may be a relatively easy thing to do at the plant level. So there's, there's being examples for, um, and I won't say easy in this case, there is a cost associated with it, but there's a company out of Canada now doing some global work called Carbon Cure that takes CO2 from a third party and injects it into the concrete mix. It's not necessarily a high, high carbon sequestering approach. Uh, it does do some, but really it's a, it reduces the amount of cement needed in the mix. Mm. So that's where you reduce the amount of emissions. Um, but they, that happens at a plant level. And so what's interesting is that if one project asks for that and is able to get it, now that plant has changed for everybody else using that plant. So that's an interesting scalability approach. Right? Yep. But the pieces at your project, there are a whole lot you can do in terms of your design, in terms of your construction time. You know, do you do overhangs? Do you not do overhangs? What kind of spans do you do? Um there's pieces associated with the t- curing time of the concrete. You can use less cement in your foundation design if you give it longer time to cure. Right, uh, right. But because of the way we, we want to build things quickly, we use a lot of cement so it can cure quickly, and uh, therefore we have more emissions. So phasing of the project construction time can help you. Um, and you can make those choices there. Those are choices you make at the building site. They don't need to scale up. They're not meant to scale up their, their, your choices right. in the project. So I think there's a couple levels there. One of the ones where this is more challenging uh, is something like steel, for example. Mm-hmm. So steel is a global commodity where we still have a lot of recycled steel all over the world. It's been a predominant one. A lot of U.S. steel is recycled, though not all of it. And recycled steel comes uh, and is produced into new members or uh, in an electric arc furnace, typically can take a lot of recycled steel. It uses electricity by giving its name, and in some cases can be powered by renewable electricity. So you have a huge opportunity right there. Just the electric arc furnaces alone, uh, despite the fuel source uh, from from the electricity, are much less carbon intensive than traditional blast furnaces. Uh, and so, uh, you know, you got a, a change there, but we're still making a lot of new steel because the demand is so high. So even if you specify low carbon steel from electric arc furnaces, from renewable energy sources, which you should do, there's still, you're just displacing and moving around steel and somebody else is going to get the raw resource. Mm -hmm. And I think there has got to be a recognition that that's happening. But 
that doesn't mean we can't send a market signal that we want in the building sector these low carbon alternatives and we want more innovation from the manufacturers and say we don't want that blast furnace steel you might find a market for it somewhere in the world but the building sector isn't going to be it mm-hmm. we can get into all of the main materials and the other one is of course wood uh-huh. uh, and I said earlier, not all wood is good, which is important for everybody to understand, given the new focus of it as a potential carbon sequestering material and a replacement in structural design to concrete and steel for high-rise and mid-rise buildings. It's got a lot of potential if it's done right in sustainable forest practices, and they take care of the soil and they take care of that environment. Um, they don't overlog and they don't do all of these things that we already know in the, in the building sector do bad things in forests. Um, the question is, how can we get at that? What do we need to ask for? Are certifications enough? Uh, do we have to use certifications? Is there enough of a supply? Um, can I make sure I get it on my project? Or are there enough manufacturing facilities for the types of members that I need from those supplies? So this is an issue I think that the forestry sector really needs to work together with to solve and come up with solutions for the built environments, increasing demand on their products for these larger projects. Um, A real big difficulty, and this is one of my things that I've I've talked about with many of my colleagues, is that we have a lot of really talented engineers and architects uh, and contractors and builders that are becoming experts in particular materials. They're trying to learn about forest science and soil science and manufacturing for concrete and steel and that's good. It's great for, to be informed. We should know, be informed and be aware. And that's the whole point of the carbon spark materials palette and all of this information. But those are not our industries, right? There are others in those industries that we don't inherently trust. I think there's a lack of trust in the building sector with the claims coming out of industry. And so we need to find credible partners that can bridge the gap between what industry is saying that we may or may not trust and what we really need. Mm-hmm. Uh, because we shouldn't be spending our time investigating forest science <laughs> and soil science. We should be spending our time figuring out how to design better buildings and learn to trust somebody. Yeah. Um, so that, you know, that's something we're working on. Um, I, I think we're building coalitions with credible NGO partners that are not representing industry and just trying to sell us something, but are really looking out for the best interests. And even they all are all saying slightly different things. So I can understand why it's difficult for us to build trust here because we're hearing mixed messages. Uh, what we need to do is come together as a sector and make some decisions and then put some market pressure for the, the industries and their NGO partners to figure this out mm-hmm. and provide us with information that we need and be credible. I was uh, just at a um, FSC uh kind of discussion focus group this morning um, that was hitting on this exact point of, of uh, kind of trust and, and, and collaboration uh, with industry. Um, thankfully, in this conversation, we had a, a great um, a distributor here in the Northwest of FSC products, and that's their focus. And they were sort of there with uh, builders and designers um, you know, trying to solve some of these logistical problems of, um, you know, meeting the demand with, uh, and they have the supply, but how, how to get it, um, you know, on time, uh, and in the right places. 
and uh, kind of just a, a, a fragmented world of, you know, going to lumber yards, placing small orders, big orders, uh, lead times for engineered uh, wood products, a um, whole host of, of issues, very real, uh, but it, I, I can see some good hope there that partners like, uh, like this group, uh, Sustainable Northwest Woods, is, is you know, taking, taking a leadership role to, uh, you know, see both sides of the, here's the demand from the building community, and, and then they have those relationships with the supply, and, you know, now let's solve, let's solve smaller problems, um, a bunch of smaller problems to, you know, to get that wood into more projects. So yeah. that's really encouraging to hear. Yeah. So yeah. I think, uh, you yeah. know, you're, you're using that theme with some of your examples of in, you know, concrete and steel and, and others to say, we got to find, we got to find those partners and, and, and grow it within industry does, does really feel, um, important. So, uh, you know, you started to hint, uh, or, or yeah, hint on, uh, renewable energy and and we've obviously touched on um, various building technologies in you know at a project project level um, but before we jump into um, building electrification in in a big big broad strokes what uh, maybe just quick sidebar here how did you uh, find yourself in this industry we, we don't have to put any dates here Vince but <laughs> uh, we, you know, we both have, uh, kids now, so we're, you know, we're into, we're into, you know, a new dawn, but, uh, you know, I don't know, backtracked for us a little bit and what, how did this all come together? A little character profile for yeah. you, Jerry. Yep, please. Uh, gosh, um, where to start? Uh, I was trained as a civil and environmental engineer. Um, that was where my schooling went. But before I got into civil and environmental engineering, I did pursue aerospace engineering and did a year of that wow. training. But but I recognized that, you know, well, it's, it's one of those things, Jared. It's like when you're in high school and you're good at math <laughs> science, they say, you should be an engineer. Send this, and then, send this guy to work on planes. Yeah, or well, send, you're or send him to space. That's right. I mean, you're interested in science fiction and then you think, okay, I'll... I'll I mean, and now there's more opportunity than there was then um, on that front. At that time, they were, you know, NASA wasn't even doing any more missions. You know, we were flying people up in Russian spacecrafts for a big chunk of change kind of thing. Um, and I, I just decided, look, I might work on something my entire career and it may never go up. Right. Uh, and that didn't seem appealing to me. I, I had a long care for the environment. I was one of those kids in... Um, elementary school that spent my lunch breaks picking up trash in the playground with a few other kids. Ooh. I was part of the ecology club, kind of that kind of a thing. <laughs> um, and so, and I think I also probably wanted to design my own house. And so okay. as an engineer, you don't even know about architecture when you're in school. Nobody tells you if you're in particularly a math person. So I heard about civil and environmental engineering and I went in, into that instead of aerospace. I literally came back down to earth, as I say. Ooh, yeah. Um, and I, I found it 
a little bit frustrating, to be honest, as in the civil and environmental engineering, you have the term environmental in there uh-huh. and the environmental pieces are really mostly about wastewater treatment, huh. uh, pumping, pumping wastewater in different places. And there's a lot of, you know, chemistry involved in that and biology associated with you know, breaking down things and all that kind of stuff. But there, it wasn't the environment that I was perceiving, right? The, the global uh, environment. And they, you also learn a whole lot of different disciplines within civil and environmental engineering. There's transportation, there's structures, there's foundation design, there's uh, general contracting, project management. You know, it's, it's a kind of an interesting degree. You, you get like six or seven <laughs> disciplines all at once. Yeah. And then you, you pick a, a focus. And I picked structures and foundation design because I was good at math and there's a lot of math and structures. Um, and I had took one course in college called design for the environment that was actually hosted by the mechanical engineering department and wasn't really about building systems it, it, it lead had come out around that time and it was about rating systems uh, there was also a decent amount about life cycle assessment which i find very interesting in that course um and product product manufacturing and we were we were, our project was to design a rating system and my team designed one on passive solar design um, we had, we might've had an architect in the group. I'm not exactly sure how that came up, but, um, so I did a lot of research on passive solar design. Surprisingly enough, did not come across our founder and CEO, Ed Mazaria's book, which was the big <laughs> book on that topic in the seventies, I think it came out in 79, um, but didn't, did come off in a research. Um, but we, we did this whole project. And so that was kind of gotten my first foot in the door and then the, the topic. Well, actually the, the story goes that I was working as a structural engineer. Uh, my mother sent me an article about Ed's Ed Masria's leaving his practice and starting up this nonprofit of architecture 2030. And she said, Hey, isn't this what you've really been looking about doing? And I said, that's absolutely is exactly what I want to be doing. And so uh, I quit my job, started tutoring math and science at the high school and got a meeting with Ed and said, I'm working for you. And he said, but we don't know what we're going to do. And I said, that's okay. And he said, but we don't have any money. And I said, that's okay. I'll see you on Monday. And essentially got myself in, into the job. I didn't know if it was, you know, where I was going to be going. So I had also applied for a master's of science program at Berkeley uh, in the architecture department and got accepted, but ended up deferring that and then eventually not going because I was working for Ed. And I got a lot of my initial energy training when I didn't, in, in fact, move to San Francisco while still working for Architecture 2030 at the Pacific Energy Center which is a, a ratepayer education trainings that are, are put on there by Pacific Gas and Electric. Uh, great, great educators there. You know, they've got a Heliodon and daylighting labs and really cool stuff. Um, and I got a, steeped in the energy education work there and just as a startup nonprofit with Architecture 2030. And that was uh, quite a while ago now that we go through the, the time frame. So you're so, so you're, so sorry, you're, I jumped, jumped around a little bit on so that character uh, profile. Your, your mother did know best in the end. <laughs> mother knew best. She'd be happy to hear that <laughs> if this when this goes public. Yeah, yes, yeah, absolutely. And a, I have a lot to think. About. And an interesting parallel there is uh, for me uh, back in my Boston days. Um, I was, I guess, already working uh, on Energy Star work, uh, but I then saw Ed. Um, speak at, I believe, Tufts University. Mm-hmm. And, you know, among many other, you know, some of the other uh, green building conferences, 
in in the in the early two thousands. You know, there was uh, William McDonough and and a handful mm-hmm. of others. Whereas it was you know one of a handful of you know really really inspiring moments of like oh you know really oh this this is this is a new way to look at it and and understand the power of the um, design community of the built environment of these materials um, uh, in in these different realms so anyways it, one of one of my uh, early inspirations um, albeit a a brief one uh, in a uh, you know in an auditorium <laughs> looking at PowerPoint slides, but uh, sometimes that's all it takes. That, that is, that is. So uh, Vince, you you hit on a, a while back some some renewable energy pieces. Uh, so let's let's revisit um, in a bit more detail. I think the the whole realm of building electrification is uh, fascinating. Um, like all of, like all of these topics, you know, many angles uh, ranging from, uh, uh, you know, on-site technologies, building technologies, uh, utility uh, fuel mix, and how that's changing over time, which of course is heavily driven by uh, public policy, um, uh, largely at the at the state level, um, and and. Yeah, m- many more. Certainly, cost of renewables uh, dropping. Uh, but, anyways, big, big, you know, kind of frothy topic here. Wh- what, um, yeah, what, what's kind of the thinking and, and angle that Architecture Twenty Thirty is taking? Sure, and I think this goes back to my initial piece about the Twenty Thirty Challenge originally being a fossil fuel energy reduction mm-hmm. challenge, not not just energy, but fossil fuel energy. And, and that plays two components. There's energy used at the building site. We used to actually have a graphic that talked about how every little mini building was a was its own power plant. And many much of that has to do with the on-site use of fossil fuels like uh, gas and heating oil, for mostly for space and water heating. Um, and then the other side is what we're getting from the electricity grid, which is still predominantly powered by fossil fuels to create electricity. Mm-hmm. Um, and no matter how many how much gains we make on energy conservation and squeeze every last drop of energy out of buildings, which we should continue to do, we have to at some point deal with the fact of what our energy choices are and what we're con- taking from the electric utilities. And while you said you're, you're right that many cities and states are making progress on decarbonizing their electric grid, many are not doing so fast enough to align with the required targets from the scientific community uh, of of rapid decarbonization in that sector. And then many cities and states have not made progress on this front at all um, or or have any plans to. And so what's really interesting about the building sector is that buildings, at least in the U.S., and we can look at global statistics too, consume about three quarters of all the electricity produced. That's not industrial facilities. That's just commercial and residential buildings. Um, and we do very, very little with that demand of the large majority of electricity. Um, and so we came up with the concept about two years ago in 2018 of developing a zero net carbon code or standard for new construction. 
And there were two components of this. One is let's use the best energy efficiency standards that are out there in our model codes and get folks to adopt those right away and design to those standards. We already have really great energy efficiency standards. We could do more, but let's take the best standards we have out there and apply those. That deals with the demand side of the issue. And then how do we deal with the supply side? And Vince, Vince before you go into supply, can you just um, kind of sketch out real quick the basics inside of a you know new construction code? We're, we're talking about specifying what? Sure. So on the energy efficiency model code side, Jared, we've got two different pathways that are produced by um, ASHRAE, for example, they, for their 90.1 or their 189 code. They have prescriptive paths and a performance path. And the prescriptive path sets out the attributes of the building. This is a requirement. So that's U value and in the windows, R values in the walls, window to wall ratio, those kind of attributes of the building design. And you can go through, it's essentially a checklist and you can qualify it with the code and, yep. and move yep. forward. The performance pathway takes all of those attributes, creates a basement building saying, hey, this is what the building would use if you followed the prescriptive path. And then you can model and do trade-offs and other distinctions to get below that. And that's the performance pathway. Right. Um, those are both really important. Uh, prescriptive pathways allow, which is the majority of the pathways that most practitioners follow because there's a lot of buildings out there and many of them are not as sophisticated. They just want to move forward, get things done, be told what to do and, and move on. Mm -hmm. The per performance path is really important for innovation and design flexibility. That way you can make trade-offs. Uh, it might be important as long as you're meeting the same level of energy consumption, you know, there's no difference to the, the electric utility or to the city in terms of the consumption patterns of the building. So it gives you some flexibility and, and design freedom. So they're both really important. Um, and ASHRAE has the standard and usually that goes through a code process and is adopted by the International Code Council as part of the International Energy Conservation Code, the IECC, which comes out every three years. And their whole host of proposals are provided to increase the stringency. And sometimes uh, you know, there are opponents of it, so they try to decrease the efficiency of those standards. But it's a code making process. There's a, a body and a, a process in which that happens. And the, those don't deal with the supply of that energy. They don't deal with the fact that whether or not you're using a particular fuel on site or where you're getting your electricity from, whether it's coming from fossil fuel sources or fossil fuel sources. And uh, the zero codes attempt is to create a renewable energy standard that says that all new construction bring with it carbon free, greenhouse gas emitting free energy sources that you're not allowed to just take what the grid gives you anymore, but you actually have to generate or procure carbon free renewables energy sources to power your building. So that's the concept of the zero code. It's not meant to replace or augment the energy efficiency conservation standards. Those we want to see the best possible energy conservation standards at a scalable uh, model code perspective be adopted. And other individual jurisdictions can take it further uh, if they can uh, legally, some of them can't. Um, and then we want them to add on and say, hey, we're gonna actually deal with the supply side here through the demand of the buildings. 
Gotcha. And gotcha. so Architects 2030 put out this zero code with the help of one of our senior fellows, a code expert named Charles Ely back in 2018. And then the American Institute of Architects, which is a song, strong supporter of the code, uh, helped champion it as a voluntary appendix in the ECC 2021 process that just uh, came to a close recently. And we're fortunate enough that um, we were able to have that provision passed. So it's a voluntary appendix to the 2021 IECC that cities, uh, states, and other jurisdictions can adopt. Um, and that would make it a requirement for buildings in their jurisdiction to bring with them uh, renewable energy for new construction projects. Wow. Yeah, that's great. Uh, absolutely. It's, it's a huge feat forward. The cities have been championing the need for a policy like this. There's a bit of a debate, I think, in terms of who has jurisdiction to um, say what the energy sources the building uses. Is that in those states where the building code is set by the state rather than allowing flexibility at the city? Does the state have authority or does the city have authority? It's not talking about energy conservation of the building, it's talking about the supply of energy to the building. So it's sort of an interesting new area and there aren't a whole lot of precedents here. There are a few. Um, the state of California has big bold strategies and it has made into their plan that all new construction, I think starting next year, new residential will have to have a certain amount of solar on the roof. And now during the rulemaking process, um, they're saying that some of that can be allowed to be purchased offsite. And that's really the, the piece of the zero code that's the most significant is the way that it structures how you deal with offsite procurement. Because there are a whole variety of offsite renewable energy procurement options, and not all of them should be considered equally. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a whole host of issues about whether or not we actually get more renewable energy on the grid, if they can keep it attached to assigned to the building. You know, what are the values of that renewable energy? Is the city getting what they, or the state or the jurisdiction getting what they want out of that policy, which is essentially to displace and rapidly transition the electric grid? Love it. Need the urgency. Yeah. And the other side of it, um, this has to do with on site, uh, which is not, not on site renewable energy generation, yeah. which is part of, part of the zero code, but on site fossil fuel use. Right. And, you know, we've sort of glossed over this. This has kind of been the embodied carbon issue on the operational side of things. We've known for a very long time um, that there's a huge percentage in certain cases, it's half of our energy loads in our buildings are natural gas on site for heating in our hot water and our spaces. Many of us yeah. have a natural gas boiler or furnace or hot water heater in our homes. Many commercial buildings are that way. Um, and we're continuing to build and install more natural gas infrastructure in our buildings, which by definition em emit em emissions. And if we're going to zero emissions has to be addressed. And so this is part of that whole getting to zero or achieving zero approach, Jared, that we talked about earlier is now we actually have to pay attention to this. Right. We might've installed an efficient gas boiler in the past because it helped reduce our energy consumption, but it doesn't reduce our emissions the way uh, to get to zero. So this is our opportunity now to take stock of what we're doing from a design perspective and saying, should we really be locking ourselves into a fossil fuel greenhouse gas emitting system right. choice for these buildings? Uh, and many jurisdictions now, which you, I'm sure you'll have a future podcast on, uh, have created um, bans or disincentives to installing gas in new construction and major renovation projects. Right. 
sort of is a wave this last year and out of California, it's expanded. It's also a global uh, phenomenon. You're seeing uh, the Netherlands, for example, making that and the entire UK residential stock supposed to hit that at 2025. It's not isolated sure. to California or progressive cities. Um, and then the design community has a big role to play because we're the ones that specify that. The, the other big piece is actually getting gas and fossil fuel use on site out of buildings. Um, so how do we retrofit millions of buildings across the globe that currently use fossil fuels on site? Um, and finding the appropriate intervention points, which are the life cycle of a building in which it's, uh, there's less interference with what's happening with the building systems. It doesn't cost as much. Um, how can we look for incremental costs rather than upfront costs? Uh, and so those are things like time of sale, when the building exchanges hands or equipment replacement when that product uh, or system fails you're replacing it with a different type of system because you're going to have to replace it anyway so the incremental cost of switching to an all-electric system if there is one is minimal right 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 so on the um and we should we should date ourselves here it is uh january 8th 2020 uh here's to the new decade uh, when we we look at these uh, efforts around uh, reducing, eliminating um, natural gas on site in new construction, um, I'm certainly following the Seattle uh, conversations. Um, what other um, U.S. cities are you especially tracking, or, or who is kind of leading the way here? Um, yeah, there's now I think over. 30 there, there's probably more now i have a list um many of them started in california berkeley was the first okay. it happened i believe in july of 2019 uh, it might have been a little earlier in the year um and then very quickly with a few months later there were eight i think san jose was the biggest of the california cities to uh propose i think in that case it's a disincentive not an all, all right ban they essentially make it really difficult to install gas or expensive to do it but you can still do it yep. Um, and, and then more and more piled up. Um, there are ones outside of um, California that are considering it, or it's at least in the plan. A lot, uh, one in particular that's gotten a lot of headlines is Bellingham, Washington is a small, smaller city, um, which got in the, written up in the Seattle Times and then now in the New York Times. Uh, it's not even a proposed policy yet. It's just identified as a need and a plan to decarbonize, which is by definition, required. So uh, it's interesting how much controversy is happening there on that topic. Um, the others are Brookline, Massachusetts, and I think Cambridge is considering it. So there's some stuff happening in the Northeast. I mentioned the Netherlands and the UK. Uh, so again, it's not just North America or isolated yep. here to, to some leading cities. Yeah, really fascinating um, and uh, move here. Um, and I think one that, and we've been part of a couple uh, conversations in this vein of some some really important equity lenses to look through, especially on the retrofit side, where you know the cost is is going to be uh, higher to to remove gas, um, and just and just overall thinking through, um, hey, this is a big change, certainly one that we need, uh, but kind of where do we start um you know what what 
building types, what sectors, uh, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, like all of these things, so many logistics in terms of how it's executed. And, um, uh, you know, I think, as you mentioned, things, things like, you know, time of, uh, you know, point of sale, you know, as a building's turning over, you know, just thinking through smartly how, um, how things can be done most efficiently and cost effective, cost effectively. Uh, but, we obviously need a schedule to, to get them moving. Great. And get started. Yeah. And I think with this whole electrification conversation, Jared, you really have to not just talk about it as a big abstract concept, but get into particular sectors because new construction is very different than existing buildings. Sure. Sure. Uh, you know, office buildings are very different than fast food or, you know, commercial kitchens, uh, you know, and so, the issues are different and, and some of them are e are e more easily converted or already designed. And, and I think there's been a lot of great work in California on design professionals there. And that's starting to emerge in other markets of saying, look, some of us have been doing this for a long time and we don't, we don't install fossil fuels in buildings when we are able to design buildings on budget. It doesn't cost anything more. Um, and so I think the cost piece is a bit of a red herring in many cases, some cases it certainly does, but technologies come a long way with, cold climate heat pumps for the heating side of things and with induction technology for the cooking side of things. Yep. So there's a, there's quite a bit of innovation happening where there doesn't have to be a cost premium. And in many global markets in Europe and Japan, these things are just commonplace. Right. Um, so it's sometimes it has to do with the supply chain. It has to do with technicians and workforce. Uh, there's a whole lot of varying issues here that need to be ice, you know, talked about in, in their appropriate context as to what is challenging, what's not. I find it, it's interesting you bring up the equity piece because that certainly comes up a lot for the transition of existing buildings yeah. into all electric. But in terms of uh, the benefits from equity that are the, the non-energy burden pieces, there's actually quite a bit. Much of the policies in California were passed because they focused on the air quality and human health aspects and safety aspects of all electric buildings. Yeah, so, that's a great point. You know, there's quite a bit of research now coming out that a lot of uh, asthma cases in young children are being linked to the gas stove. There was an Australian study. I believe it said that 15% of the asthma cases in children were linked to a gas stove in the home. And that, the reason for that is, you know, gas is methane that we're burning uh, on site. And if it's not properly ventilated, every time you turn on that stove, uh, those uh, emissions end up polluting the air quality in the home well beyond reasonable limits for in indoor and outdoor air quality. Absolutely. Um, and so there's a lot of opportunity there. There's safety uh, opportunities. A lot of the um, kitchens are moving to induction technology because they have fewer burns. They're not as loud. They don't have to ventilate as much as we, uh, as because of all of the exhausts. Um, and so burn rates are down. There's safety parameters you know, in some cases we're more likely to see our homes uh, go up in flames after an earthquake or a natural disaster because of a gas line rupture than uh, we are yeah. due to actual damage. Um, and so being all electric can be a safety issue at the home. And then on an infrastructure level, we've essentially given social license to have explosives under our feet <laughs> for the last 50 years. Yeah. Uh, and they're not isolated incidents, a community in Seattle that I had my office in for a while in Greenwood, if you might remember that uh -huh. a few years ago, um, 
you know, a building blew up because of a gas leak and it destroyed not only the building itself and some neighboring buildings were severely damaged, but those businesses went out of business and yep. their insurance didn't come in fast enough. And we lost a lot of local communities and that's not isolated. The entire block blew up in, in Portland, I think the year before, uh, there's issues in Boston that have come up. Um, there's also, and that's just at the community level. When you look at the infrastructure level, it's huge as well in terms of the explosions and, uh, and devastation from that. And then, and then you add in the fact of how are we actually looking at emissions um, and the distribution systems of gas contribute, have a, a lot of contributions of methane leaks. Um, which is actually more potent than if we, when we burn it, it just having a leak is uh, multiple times longer greenhouse gas than when we burn it. So these emission leaks are a huge concern. The New York yeah. Times just had a really amazing article showing some infrared uh, imaging about where these leaks are happening at the f- production facilities. Mm. It's, it's shocking. And, and that's happening not just at the facilities, but through the distribution and in certain cases, even in our the walls of our homes, which is not regulated. Right, right. Uh, yeah, I think maybe another good uh, future future podcast uh, episode on um, especially re- refrigerant um, emission leakages. Um, yeah, that's another valid concern, certainly on one of the potential solutions, right? We talk about yep. heat pump technology as a replacement for these on-site fossil fuel heating systems, but the refrigerants can, be, can leak and also produce uh, greenhouse gas emissions that stay in our atmosphere longer or more potent to the greenhouse effect right. uh, but there are solutions to that too there's you know using co2 as a refrigerant and, and other non uh yep. non-leakage prone uh, refrigerants absolutely yeah I, I feel like that's another one of those uh you know analogous to the embodied carbon world mm-hmm. or even energy you know it's invisible and and you know sort of behind the behind the scenes, uh, you know, yeah, we know that it takes energy to heat and cool things. Um, Mm -hmm. but that concept of, well, what material allows us to, to, to do that cooling largely in, in commercial refrigeration is huge. And, and Mm -hmm. the idea that it can and does leak and that those, um, you know, global warming impacts are massively, more uh intense and you know it, it just speaks to that uh lever point that um you know high impact area that if we can get um as you're saying you know more and more systems to go to a co2 based um refrigerant you know massive uh productions in in one fell swoop mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and and they're those are more prevalent in other global economies. We just can't seem to get them. Right. Absolutely. Um, Of course, we digress. Uh, Many, (laughs) many, um, many tangents, many angles. We were bound to do that at one point. Uh, You know, Vince is my, uh, you know, Renaissance sustainability uh, pal here that we could, uh, you know, we could talk for days. Um, And but okay, so let's let's finish off maybe with kind of some some rapid fire um, uh, thoughts here, um, and I, I guess I'll just kind of open it up to to final thoughts. You know what um, you know what have we missed here? 
um, that you're, um, you know, quick hits on, you know, things you're, you're reading, you're researching, other, other trends that you and, and Architecture 2030 are, are tracking closely, you know, want to get into, you know, yeah, sort of like, mm -hmm. what, what have we missed and what are you tracking? Sure. Well, I, I think we're getting a really good handle on new construction net zero buildings, net zero carbon buildings. Yep. Um, so I think we relatively know how that's structured is you design a very efficient building. There are great model codes to show you how to do it. And you make sure that that building doesn't have fossil fuels in it. And essentially it's an all electric building and that it's powered by renewable energy sources. The equation is pretty simple on that front. We don't need to get into a lot of great detail. Uh, we know how to design energy efficient buildings. We know how to design buildings that don't require on-site fossil fuels. And in many cases is cost competitive or, or cheaper than the alternative. And now we're starting to understand how we generate and procure renewable energy using our demand on, uh, for, with new construction. So that one should be relatively simple. Mm -hmm. the, the embodied emissions of those buildings given that we're building essentially a New York City every 34 days in, this, uh, in the world for the next 40 years, a massive amount of new construction, essentially building a new planet on top of this one is the projection mm -hmm. uh, in four decades, is understanding the materials and whether or not we actually need to build that much. Can we reuse existing buildings? Can we develop policies where we uh, promote building reuse and densification? And then when we do have to build, how do we make sure that we're building carbon smart with uh, less need for having high impact materials and that the materials we do select are low carbon, if not carbon sequestering. And that's where we need to spend a lot more time and focus. And Architecture 2030 is focused on that area as a priority for our work over the next decade. Uh, and then the other big elephant in the room besides embodied carbon is the existing building stock. Um, we focus so much on new construction and building codes, and yes, we are building a lot, again, a whole new planet, but there's a great uh, stat from uh, the former president of AIA, Carl Alfonte, that 100% of existing buildings exist <laughs> right now, and many, and many of them will continue to exist into the future. The projections are about two-thirds of them will continue to exist in four decades. So we have to get a handle on those and that we had a conversation about building sector intervention points and how do we get at these millions of buildings at appropriate times. So what we have to also think about is the type of buildings and the ownership of those buildings and the equity concerns. And what we found in a lot of research is that um, half of the emissions at any city are devoted or are, are responsible from the large buildings and the other half are the small buildings hundreds of thousands of small buildings and a few number of large buildings make up the pie. Mm -hmm. So policies will be different for large buildings where they have capital improvement cycles and they plan and they're upgraded and they're not quite sold as much. And there's different, not as many opportunities as intervention um, in terms of the overall makeup of the building. Whereas smaller buildings turn over quite a bit and their interventions are when people are sell the building equipment replacement and that those will have different types of policies so i think a lot more work on the existing building front but not not just benchmarking and understanding building performance which is important but actually how do we drive decarbonization um, through intervention points so that we start now and we have enough time to transition all these buildings at the appropriate timing well 
thanks so much. Um, always uh, a pleasure and uh, privilege to access your brain and um, lots of exciting stuff coming out of Architecture 2030. Yeah, look forward to uh, more collaboration as always and uh, exciting, exciting stuff on the horizon. Thanks, Jared. Thanks for having me for your initial podcast. Number one is in the books. <laughs> Thank you. Vincent Martinez, Architecture 2030, signing off.